0: Hey, all of you beautiful humans, welcome back to another episode of the search for serotonin podcast, a show about releasing the stigma surrounding mental health and finally finding your own happiness. I'm your host, Carolyn Farrick, and I'm sharing my most vulnerable stories around my own mental health journey in an open and authentic way to help you feel less alone in your struggles. We all deserve to be happy and we don't need to find happiness alone. So welcome to the search committee. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another week of the Search for Serotonin podcast. I am your host, Carolyn Farrick, and I am with another guest this week. I am joined by Nisha Heron-Fair. Um, she is an author, researcher, and trauma-informed sex educator, and she'll be discussing a little bit about fawning, intimacy, dismantling toxic dating culture, and authentic sexuality and how that all plays into mental health. So Nisha, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Hi, Carolyn. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: I'm so excited to get into this topic um, because like we mm-hmm. kind of already talked about before the interview started um, this is going to be a topic that I think my audience will really enjoy because it is going to center around dating culture and toxic dating culture. And a lot of my audience is in their twenties. So I'm sure they would love to hear what you have to say.
1: Well, I hope I can shed some light because it can definitely feel like a bit of a gauntlet at times no matter how old you are, it just, it doesn't stop.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a lot to dive into, but before we get into Mm. our topic, I do want to give you the chance to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you um, and anything you want to share about you.
1: Uh, thank you. Yeah, so my name's Nisha. I'm mostly based in Toronto, although I have been known to find myself on other coasts. Um, I have been an embodiment and somatic coach for about 14 years now. And um, it's probably just in the last five or six that I started focusing on trauma informed pleasure work. And that was largely through my own experience um, that I started going down that route um about 6 or 7 years ago i ended in an abusive relationship and after that relationship you know i went from being this really confident um sexually literate very into my body and experimentation and you know just loved using sex as a form of play and self-expression to not even being able to touch myself and it took me months before I could self-pleasure after the relationship ended so my journey of healing that relationship really took me down this road of trying to understand the connections between nervous system health uh, mental health and well-being relationships attachment uh, and also what's happening in you know the our social sphere and how that's starting to create challenges for, you know, especially neurodiverse folks and people who identify with being more on the sensitive side. Um, so yeah, that's, I hope that gives a bit of a, of a little bit of an entry point anyways, in terms of how I got to where I am today. Yeah, of course. And I'm so sorry to hear
0: that you went through an abusive relationship. Oh. I know those are never easy.
1: It's yeah. just the nature of hierarchies. In relationships Um, and this happens it doesn't matter what your gender or orientation is power struggles power dynamics happen all the time in relationships and they can happen because we were raised in authoritative homes and that's what we learned that you know relationships were and they can also happen simply because we're raised in a very hierarchical patriarchal society, where certain people within our society have rights and freedoms and powers that others don't, where those are, you know, the, the unwritten rules. So within, say, for example, a male-female relationship, there's an inherent hierarchy that is established. And when you have manipulative people, unhealed people, um, they will impose their assumed hierarchy, their assumed power on others. And this is the, why I want to plant the seed is because this hierarchical piece, this hierarchical stress is the crux of fawning and performing in relationship. Fawn is a hierarchical stress response. We don't fawn at falling tree branches or oncoming cars. We fawn with people who impose themselves, either their power, their social influence or what have you on us and our bodies. So I think that's, that's probably a good place to start in terms of where, what I can say about abusive and toxic dynamics. On
0: the piece of fawning, You actually Mm -hmm. have an entire book about fawning. It's called Fawn When No Looks Like Yes. So do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, what that book discusses and then also maybe defining a little bit more of what fawning is and then how people can identify that in their own
1: lives? Mm -hmm. So fawn is a stress response. It's a natural biological stress response that all humans and a lot of mammals do. It's an evolved thing that our nervous systems have, have evolved to be able to um, withstand stress and overcome challenges. It's just part of living as a mammal in the world today. The issue with fawn is that, again, it's a it's a submissive response. So it's triggered by intimidation or by, you know, someone or something with more physical or social power. So we've kind of, at this point now, or you know, 2020, we know a lot about fight flight, right? It was established in the 1920s or 30s. It was first identified. Fawn is brand new. We just found out about it 20 years ago and it was only discovered because it was discovered by a female led team who was exploring the way women respond to stress. So fawn is a predominantly female stress response, and this is partly because of our neurophysiology, because of our hormonal complex, but also because within, again, this hierarchical paradigm, women have less inherent power control. So they're conditioned to submit more than other, more than men are, right? So Where fight, flight, we can easily look at and say, okay, so if I'm having a fight, flight response in my body, in my nervous system, it might look like lashing out or running away or feeling or looking really panicked. We can really easily identify those things, right? The difference with fawning is that the behaviors are exactly the same in terms of being reflections of a body level response. but. They've come to be wired into our assumptions about femininity and how women are supposed to behave in the world. So they look like people pleasing, going along with things to serve the greater good or to make someone happy, Um, saying yes to something you don't want to do to save the relationship is a form of fawning. The whole playing out the kind of like um, sex goddess gushing, you know, porn star archetype is a form of fawning and performing so essentially it's fawning on a biological and also um, experiential level involves the repression of our authentic self in order to try and attain more safety or affection or connection with someone so that's that's fawn in a nutshell do you want to comment on that I feel like I just saw something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So just with you saying like fight or flight response
0: or people pleasing Mm -hmm. or trying to kind of use it as a way to protect yourself almost from like unknown Mm -hmm. or causing like commotion in the relationship. Those are a lot of terms that I find myself using to describe anxiety. I always say when I'm feeling anxious, I get into this fight or flight state. And a lot of the times when I am anxious, I go to people pleasing because it creates less conflicts and it creates less rifts and it's less stuff that I have to try and navigate. So do you think fawning in a toxic relationship or an un- in an unhealthy relationship can produce anxiety? Do those things tend to be seen hand in hand or is it a little bit different?
1: Yeah. So what I've tried to do with the book is really open up how we understand our experience of our nervous system and how we understand stress responses generally, because a lot of the messaging that we receive, whether it's on Instagram or, you know, wherever we get our information, things are really kind of siloed and categorized and like, this is this, and anxiety is that, and fight and flight is something else. But the truth is, when we're experiencing any form of stress, it happens in what's called a stress response cascade. And within that cascade, there are seven different possible resources that we can use. Fawn is one of them, fight flight is one of them, freezing, flopping, shutting down. We can, um, if I go to fight flight, I might go to freeze after that. If I find that in freeze, okay, I'm actually, I'm actually able to find some stasis, I might go right back down and be able to feel regulated again. So it's it's less about there being one single track that we might be on or one sort of series or, or category of behaviors, and rather a whole complex <laughs> of different doors that we can go down, doors and hallways and hallways and doors that lead to other hallways and doors. Um, and the other piece is that, and this is why I I really want to open things up for people because our nervous system responses are not set destinations. So when I'm in fight flight, I don't stay there. And even if I was going to hang out in fight flight for a while, there's a huge spectrum of possible different experiences and feelings that I can experience there, encounter there. So... We can use a little bit of fawn with a little bit of fight flight. I can be anxious and I can be kind of shut down. We can mix and match all of these responses together in order to help ourselves survive. So there's no one cookie cutter. This is the way it is all the time, right? Different people, different types of relationships, different circumstances, trigger us to use these responses in different ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I really love that you said, you know, everyone is different. Relationships are going to look different. I always try and portray to my audience that even though I might struggle with anxiety and someone else may struggle with anxiety, you know, that's going to look completely different between two people because Mm -hmm. everybody reacts to different things differently. Every or people are triggered by different things or, you know offset by different things. So I really love that you kind of said you can mix and match responses, you know, it's not going to be one clean cut answer or definition. And that's something I really portrayed to my audience. So I'm, I'm so glad that you Mm -hmm. mentioned that. And yeah, that was very helpful.
1: You know, I think I'm like, we're kind of in this really cool time in our human history where we have all this access to information and there's so many, like I grew up in the nineties there were no like Instagram carousels to tell me that what I was experiencing was a panic attack You know, when I was yep. in high school. Like we didn't have any of that. We just suffered and we're like, I'm alone in this. It felt really, really lonely. And now there's always, you know, upsides and downsides. And the, I won't say a downside, but uh, an area for discernment when we have access to so much information is to really be discerning about how it affects us personally. That just because this influencer on Instagram says this is the way it is, doesn't mean it has to be that way for me. Right? We all experience things differently. And it's so important to build self trust through the process of, of navigating you know, our, our growth.
0: Yeah and I'm so glad that you mentioned you know social media information is yes a lot of information and sometimes that information is accurate for some people but not always everybody and Another thing I always tell my audience is make sure that if they're seeing stuff online, that they're taking that information and looking at credible sources to back up that information, or they're talking to trained professionals in order to make sure that the information they're digesting is actually true. And if it does pertain to them, then great. They can work with a professional to work through that or get the right information, but never to take what you see off of Instagram or TikTok at face value. You always need to kind of, dig a little
1: deeper almost yeah and even with that like especially so within the fawn conversation um, yes professionals are wonderful and we're all well trained and we have a lot of experience but um, we don't all work to support our clients to dismantle their own unresolved hierarchies within the pr- practitioner client relationship So that's something that I do with my clients every day. We sit down before we even start, we'll have a conversation. We'll say, okay, so what do you think your role is in the practitioner client relationship? Am I supposed to do the work for you? Are you supposed to just take everything that I say point blank and not question it? Because this is part of how these authoritarian paradigms work into everything from health and well-being to parenting to our intimate relationships. So yes, consult your professional and yes, go and do your research, but really lean into what feels true for you on a body level. That is so much more important than anything, because if we have histories of fawning in our background or just in terms of how we've interpreted what it means to be male, female, non-binary, we are at a greater risk of fawning through our personal growth and fawning with our professionals, with our therapists. So that's, again, something that not a lot of therapists are really attuned to, the fact that their clients are entering into a hierarchical relationship with them and then can unwittingly start to fawn and, and, um, go along with certain treatment paths that may not necessarily feel truly authentic. So always yes. And right. With everything.
0: Yes. I love that you said that that is so important Mm -hmm. for people to hear. So thank you so much for sharing that as well.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: Awesome. So just, um, one more thing with fawning. Um, Mm -hmm. so if someone, out there may currently be experiencing fawning, what are some things that they can look for to identify that, Hey, I'm actually living through fawning right now. And what are some tools that they can use to
1: navigate and maybe help themselves? Here's the thing about fawning. And I'm kind of really glad you asked this question because, um, the body level effect of fawning is to inhibit our awareness of our circumstances, of our boundaries, of our bodies. So it can be really tricky to dismantle because our bodies are shutting us down and preventing us from being able to see clearly. And not just that, when we're in one of these fond or what's also called hypo arousal type responses, the parts of our brain that are responsible for speech and language making, all of that blood flow is being redirected to Things like blood flow and you know, lung capacity, breathing, circulation these kind of more primary um, body functions for survival. So things you can think of like not feeling like you can't use your voice, either feeling like actually physically clammed up in your voice or like it won't matter if you say anything because your opinion isn't valued or um, it never worked in the past. Things like, uh, like I said, going along with something that you don't really want to do, but you feel like you don't have a choice. Um, Saying yes to a certain sexual act or a certain sexual lifestyle um, because you want to save the relationship or because. The person has given you some indication that you don't really have a choice. So these fawning usually happens in response to coercive behaviors, manipulative behaviors, right? So you hear things like, oh, but it's my birthday, or oh, you promised, or oh, you know, you just need to get used to it, right? You did it with the other guy, you know, these kind of um coercive comments that break a person's will down, really. So they're Anything that we might do to try and get something over with quickly, my, I don't know if I said this in the beginning, but my kind of like card carrying blanket version of example of fawning is the get out of my apartment hand job. So it's this kind of thing where it's like, oh, fine, just like get it done with and be gone, right? Because there's this fear that I'll either create conflict and maybe it'll bring more harm on me or the person's given me no indication that my no will be accepted and heard. So I have to just do this thing to protect myself. Um, Some other examples are, so a big one that I kind of see for a lot of people, some people um, in relationships where one partner wants to try polyamory or open things up and, and get into swinging more. And this can be more common in relationships where there are children involved, where the partner's like, well, I, I kind of have to, because we're family and I need to go along with this thing, but it happens even for folks who don't have families or kids yet. And, um, there's this feeling like I need to sacrifice what feels authentic and true, what I want to do in order to get the person to keep liking me in order to avoid harm in order. Maybe they've given an ultimatum and said, if you don't, you know, do a threesome with me, I'm going to break up with you, right? Which happens. <laughs> so there are these ways in which we abandon ourselves, but the self-abandonment is not a choice. It is an effect of this fond response. I yeah. feel like I just said a lot, so I'm going to leave back and let you talk.
0: No, I was <laughs> going to say, I really just sat there and took all of that in because like I said, you know, I've gone through toxic relationships in the past. I'm currently dating someone we've been dating for two years. So I've been out of the dating game for a little bit, but when I was dating and I was dating toxically and toxic people, a lot of what you just said, I was thinking back to specific situations that I've encountered. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just this sense of guilt. You know, your partner is trying to guilt you and coerce you, like you said, to get that. Um, But yeah, I think a lot of women especially will resonate with just what you just described. So thank you so much for sharing that.
1: Mm -hmm. No, for sure. And there's one more thing I do want to mention because, and it's, it's a little bit of a, you know, I have a bee in my bonnet about it because there seems to be this, this trend that I'm hearing about from like almost every single one of my clients of non-consensual choking. Um, People are just choking each other willy-nilly without asking first. (laughs) And now I wanna like just, there is no shame if you enjoy like a little bit of pressure. There's there's some pleasure that a lot of people get from that feeling of like containment and release. So have at it, but you don't know if someone's gonna love the feeling of that unless you ask first. Right, yeah. so this is kind of. I think it's something that's. I'm going to take a teeny little detour here. Um, in so tar- in so far as like erotic media and um, what do you call it, the Fifty Shades of Grey,
0: mm-hmm.
1: all of this kind of content that we're we've got so much more um, acceptance around. Right. And we've got more exposure to. But the problem with all of these media is that and no time is anyone portraying the consent process. Right. There's no one saying, hey, um, I heard that this feels really good for some people. Do you want to try it? Right. Not at all. And all most of these media, people are just sort of reenacting a lot of the narratives around male and female sexuality as opposed to really connecting with what feels authentic, not just for people on an individual level, but what feels authentic for the couple and their sexual evolution. So that's my, my, my flag flying. <laughs> yeah, no, I love
0: when people bring in, you know, like examples of what's portrayed in TV, movie, or music, you know, how these certain topics that we talk about on this podcast are portrayed in the media, because like you said, that whole side is not being showed the consensual process mm-hmm. is not just like how i've said you know in the past i had toxic relationships And I was never comfortable, you know, being open and honest and expressing, hey, this is what I want, or maybe let's do this instead. I would just kind of suffer in silence because like you said, you know, people pleasing and just getting through it. So it's also nice to finally like get to that point from like toxic dating to then being with somebody who is healthy. So you can get to those points of open discussion and verbal consent.
1: Yes. Here, here for that. And I'm so happy for you. Congratulations that you have found that. <laughs> it's so special. So special. And I think, you know, we need to like celebrate that more. Part of, I think sometimes when we have really healthy, beautiful relationships where we feel seen and where both people are like really great communicators, we kind of maybe we feel bad because all of our friends are having really terrible experiences. And the fact is we need to model this more. We need to show this and say like, no, this is what the norm is. This is what the norm ought to be. This is what we should be shooting for. And I think that's part of the invitation that I hope more and more, you know, not just erotic media producers will will take on, but also in our regular TV is just showing more authentic and more healthy interactions between, between couples but you know, this is, this is the other side of it, right? Like that's not good TV. Exactly. We like to see people having explosive arguments and, you know, being flawed. Like that's, that's interesting. It's stimulating to our nervous system. it gets us fired up and it keeps us binging episode after episode after episode. So it's this kind of like, right. There's this, you know, part of, we may have heard the the kind of like motto of needing to be responsible for your own pleasure, but part of being responsible for our own pleasure is really uh, taking responsibility for how the way we're being conditioned by all the things that we see, all the modeling that we experience, is affecting us and saying, "No, that's actually not how I want to be." So I either need to remove those, you know, devices and things from my life, or I need to be more choiceful in the way I'm conditioning myself and really, really kind of untangling all of those threads of how we're being taught to be unhealthy, really.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you said that, you know, we ourselves have to be aware of that because, you know, as someone who's struggled with toxic relationships, mental health, a lot of things like that it has put me in a place where a lot of my life I felt out of control. And so part of my healing journey has been learning how to realize that I've always had control. I have the power to change things. I have the power to, you know, do things differently or consume different sources or things like that, and just change my perspective on things. So I'm really glad that you know, you said, remind people, Hey, you have the power to switch something. If something's making you uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. if something isn't working for you, you can do something different because you have control over, you know, what
1: happens. Yeah. And everything in our lives right now is teaching us to not be comfortable, right. To not know our own bodies to take ourselves out of the present moment and to, you know, self-abandon and the things that we buy or watch or the ways we interact with people. So, you know, a lot of the work that I do with clients and a lot of, this is all in the book is really teaching people how to connect with their own body level experience of somatic comfort, because once you know that only then can we know how to differentiate the red flags and the low vibe behavior? Cause if you can't feel it in your body, it's going to be like, okay, well, I guess this is normal because we're used to working. We're living at this kind of like low grade activation where everything's scary and we expect bad things to happen every five seconds. And Oh God, what next notification am I going to see? Who else is going to go to war now? You know, it's just sort of this heightened experience and really encouraging people to to connect to somatic comfort and pleasure using pleasure as the route to getting there so that's that's i think the the juice and the joy because ultimately when there are so many forces in the world that are trying to deprive us of pleasure and rob us of like who we are. Like, I don't just believe pleasure is our birthright. I believe it is who we are on like an unalterable level that the truth of who we are is only encapsulated when we are engaged in some kind of pleasurable experience, whether it's like walking through a forest or having a really delicious bath or cuddling with someone like that's the truth of who we are. That's who we are when all of like those really horrible voices and the negativity are gone and we can just be who we are as we came here to be.
0: Yeah. I love that. I love that. That's really awesome that you shared that. Um, Mm -hmm. So you did mention red flags. Um, Mm. Do you want to talk a little bit about red flags and what those can kind of look like? Because I know, you know, red flags can also signal, this might be a toxic relationship. This could be a toxic Mm -hmm. person. So do you want to talk a little bit about those?
1: Sure. So Red flags are kind of like, I call, the, I call them the Bermuda Triangle of dating relationships because it's this kind of thing where it's like, we know where it is, but we don't know where it is and we can't find it, but we know bad things happen there when we go there. Um, here's the thing about red flags. They're personal, right? So what's a red flag? I mean, it might not be a red flag for you, it might not be a red flag for the next person. There's sort of a three-pronged and this is why I call it the Bermuda Triangle of of dating relationships because there's three points or three prongs to um, what prevents us from being able to see them and believe them the first time we see them, right? So just gonna back up for a second. So when you see like a skull and crossbones sticker on a bottle of bleach, you know that's gonna burn your insides up, right? or when you see like a sign at the beach that says sharks, no swimming, you're not going to jump in the water, right? So when we're looking at red flags and the way they show up in relationships and dating, it's really about context, right? So it's not like we're physically incapable of seeing red flags. It's that when we're in relationships, we've been, I mean, this is This is sort of part and parcel of being in relationships. There's ebb and flow and we have to kind of make concessions from time to time. But particularly for women, we've been conditioned to see unhealthy behavior as normal, right? So things like unavailable fathers are just really, really busy. When a little boy pulls on your pigtails, that just means he likes you. Um, and as we start dating, we hear things like, oh, you know, um, maybe he was just having an off night or just give him another chance, or he's probably just intimidated by you. All of these kind of excuses that we make for less than optimal behavior. And that's not to say that men can't, or any people can't get intimidated and feel anxious, but the problem is that typically these kinds of excuses are being used to explain away or make excuses for, um, unhealed behavior. So that's point number one. Point number two is that if I was raised in an unhealthy home environment, I'm going to see all of that unhealthy behavior as normal because that's all I know. So if I was around people who gaslighted each other, who um, took up space and invaded other people's space, that's going to be normal to me. So all of that kind of red flag behavior is now just a normal part of life. So that's another reason that we can't see red flags. The third reason is because if we've been conditioned to fawn, which again, like it's part of our conditioning of gender, of of femininity, one of the effects of fawning is to, like I said, decrease or diminish your awareness of yourself and your surroundings and to second guess yourself right? So in addition to these social factors, the upbringing factors, we have our bodies on the body level that are making it hard to even just see these red flags as red flags. Now, the other piece, because it's more complex than that even, when we're little girls growing up and we're starting to go through puberty, we have an increase in estrogen. And that increase in estrogen, this is around age seven, eight, it does a few things. It increases our emotional intelligence. It increases our self-awareness and our awareness of the world, and it decreases our confidence. So, confidence in ourselves, confidence in our uh, our intuition, in what we think is right. So, just in and of that, in that, in that sort of like one little moment in our growth, we have we're being set up really both in our bodies and in in society to, um, to question ourselves and to not believe ourselves. And then again, as we grow up, we're told not to listen to our intuition, to second guess. You know, we're like, oh, is that, that kind of feels wrong to me. No, 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 it's fine. That's normal. That's just the thing you have to, you know, deal with in the world, because that's what it means to be a woman, or a non-binary person, or um, or gay, right? Um, or in any way different, right? Anyone with um, you know black, indigenous, and, and um, people of color experience this too, and they're at a much greater risk of of fawning and performing in their in their dating and relationships as a result.
0: Yeah. It's like society just wants to put everybody into a neat little box. They can stereotype, they can label easily. And I'm so glad that you dove into just talking about how it affects women, people of color, you know, people of the LGBTQ community, you know, we all can experience this, you know, everybody can go through these things. Everybody can feel these types of ways. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that.
1: Totally. I mean, like, you know, we're talking about stress responses. The thing that like, we kind of forget is why they're happening. Right. And they're happening because we don't feel safe because someone's either invaded our boundaries or threatening to invade our boundaries is really trying to undermine our sense of security and our sense that like, it's okay to just be in the world, you know? So this is another reason why I'm like, so, committed to supporting people to connect with that feeling of somatic comfort because that's where safety is when you feel safe in yourself in your body in the moment then we make better choices we are our decision making is better it's more um, optimized and when we're creative it's also where we're like really open to being in connection both you know, physical intimacy and also emotional intimacy with our partners. So it's, it's a really, that safety piece is just so important.
0: Is there anything else that you would like to add that we didn't maybe get to touch on?
1: I think that the, you know, maybe just to, to kind of like do a little full circle through all the, all the little topics we touched on um, is the issue of authentic sexuality or the invitation to authentic sexuality because when our upbringings and our society and our social media and our partners are giving us all this information about what your body is supposed to look like, what your sexuality is supposed to look like, what, what you're supposed to do in order to have value as a partner, because sexual perfectionism is like huge right now and it's coming people from porn from and also from social media. Um, is to really like lean into your own authentic sexuality. And I really encourage people to practice um, choiceful rebellion and to push back against whatever messages are coming at them that feel pervasive, feel like they're kind of, I always help people with somatic cues. So if it feels like your body's kind of cowering or you sense any kind of feeling of constriction, Anywhere in your body from a message, from something someone says, something you see online, that's a good indication that it's eating away at your authentic self and it's not supporting you to come into the full expression of who you are. So as you're navigating your authentic sexuality journey or just trying to support yourself in your personal growth, look for things that give you an embodied feeling of openness that help your heart feel expansive make you feel taller and bigger in the world instead of smaller and you know less less valuable because the truth is you are here and you have value because you are here you have an inherent indestructible goodness and no one can ever take that away from you
0: I love that. I love that so much. And I love that you mentioned, you know, do things that make you feel taller, make you feel bigger, make you feel. And so just you reminding people, Hey, you have value and you need to make yourself feel big and you are important regardless of what anyone else says. I really love that message. So I'm glad you shared that. Yeah, totally. What is one way that you search for serotonin in your everyday life? What brings you happiness?
1: Well, Pleasure is really, has been sort of the cornerstone of my personal growth. Um, And it's where I, where I support clients to really cultivate a pleasure practice. And that doesn't mean just like, you know, rubbing one out and having an orgasm whenever you feel sad, or um, it's about, so pleasure, your pleasure potential isn't actually determined by how much pleasure you have, how many times you have sex, how many orgasms you can give yourself in a week. It's determined by how much displeasure you allow into your life, right? How much shady behavior, how many unhealed people, how many, um, you know, less than optimal decisions, right? So it's partly, again, like checking in, like where am I letting icky stuff into my life and how can I create this container for myself to experience more sensual pleasure. So maybe it's like putting a flower on my bedside. So the first thing I see every morning is something beautiful or putting some essential oil by my desk while I'm working so that I can just take a break and just, you know, have a little sniff every now and again.
0: All right. So last question, where can people find you? If they want to continue um following what you're doing and all of that kind of fun stuff, where can they
1: search you online? Yeah. So my website, NishaFair.com, N-I-S-C-H-A-P-H-A-I-R.com. Instagram, NishaFair. And uh, all the information about my book, Fawn, When No Looks Like Yes, is on the website. And you said this is probably going late March. It, the book will be out late March in paperback. It's already out in e-reader format. And you can get that on my website if uh, if you just can't wait for the paperback. So.
0: So thank you again, Nisha, for being here. I had a really awesome time with this conversation and I really think my audience is going to get a lot of value out of it. So thank you again.
1: Awesome. Thank you for having me. It was
0: great to connect. All right, guys, that is all for this week. Thank you for joining us for another week of the search for serotonin podcast. If you guys aren't already following the podcast, you can follow it at the search for serotonin on Instagram. Also be sure to check out my mental health related clothing that I put up for sale last week. So there's a variety of sweatshirts, t-shirts, they're all unisex and they range from sizes small to 2XL. So those will be linked in the show notes if you want to check those out. All right, you guys, thank you again. And always remember this world is better with you in it.